Welcome to the Regional Fictions Podcast. In these podcasts, researchers bring you on a journey to discover lesser-known 19th-century regional books and media documents in conversation with fellow experts. These podcasts are part of the Redefining the Region project, funded by the Dutch Research Council, NWO, at Radboud University. Episode 2. Welcome to this episode of the Regional Fictions Podcast. My name is Annelijk Scholte, and I'm a PhD candidate at Radboud University on the Redefining the Region project. My research considers regional fiction in the Netherlands and Flanders during the long 19th century. This episode is entitled Bad Reputation, Regionalism, Conservative or Avant-Garde. And for this episode, we will discuss how regionalism is often perceived in literature and the arts. The genre is often seen as reactionary or backwards, and in some cases, its artistic importance is overlooked altogether. And yet, negative stereotypes surrounding regional art are not always fair or factual. I will be joined shortly by Dr. Erik Storm at Leiden University, who has written on the relationship between regionalism and avant-garde. In his work, Dr. Storm recognizes that regionalism was highly international and innovative, and perhaps the avant-garde's main competitor in some cases. According to Dr. Storm, regionalism also influenced high art and culture. But in spite of this, regionalism has often been dismissed as conservative. In this episode, I hope to make clear that this conflation of regionalism and conservatism is itself a regional fiction. Let's briefly consider this for two authors from the Low Countries. In Flanders, Stijn Streuvels is an example of an author whose work is actually highly innovative. Some literary history sees Streuvels as a conservative regional storyteller and an author of rural traditionalism. But even in his early works, in the 1890s, Strovels is both thematically and formally experimental. His writing combines standard Dutch, regional Flemish dialects, neologisms, archaisms, and retrologisms, which are older words that have disappeared from usage. He produced hundreds of new words using compound nouns, and he heavily relied on self-invented onomatopoeia and alliterations to play with sound. Strovels' work and his literary language were far from derivative. Let's listen to a brief excerpt from one of his early works, Zomerland, published in 1900, which features plenty of wordplay and linguistic innovation. The excerpt will be read in Dutch, but perhaps our non-Dutch listeners can still pick up on some of the sound effects in his writing. Zomerland, by Stijn Streuvels, as published in The Nieuwe Gids, volume 15, 1899-1900. Het zijn allemaal blinde veemollen, riepen zij, rotte berleuren, Puppeloze tuiters, rammelzakken, schuitengaard, tanenzoppers en pellebijters, zemelzekers. Hun buik en hun leden schokten van het danig lachgeweld. Het speeksel liep hen uit den mond. Ze rolden op den rug, schopten en klepelden de benen op als Frederik of Tone of Tini, met hun droge ernst een goede scheldnaam uitvonden. En voort gingen ze overhands. Paloorde muils, moosperden, loborige honden, piskadotters, verkokerde kinkarnhoens. Zandruiters, messingzuipers, perliffellopers, rostekoekuiten, velleploters, lamme kooien, springers, verhongerde toppers, rotte kullendraaiers, schele schavuiten, verkriepelde klasseraars, krotenkappers, manke bavianen, sullebollige springhanen, zinkelaars, assenvijsters, dove notenkrakers, wanraakte scheuvels, Piezetrekkers, ze konden niet meer en kwijlden erbij dat het speeksel hun van de kinnebakken zeverde. 
Zij grepen met de vuisten in het gras en als het woord ineens wilden uitspreken, verloren zij den adem, verslikten van het lachen en werden blauw en purper in hun wezen. This is the Regional Fictions Podcast. Now, Strobus is not the only author of rural regional life whose work is stylistically inventive. The style of Dutch author Herman Maas could be compared to the new objectivity art movement of the 1920s. New objective literature is described as emotionless, non-sentimental, political and deeply invested in facts. Maas's work before 1910 already exhibits these tendencies. In the novel about peat workers in Limburg, first published in 1909, he often provides specific numbers and calculations. The wage of day laborers, the price of land and the local taxes. This is a decade before new objectivism became an important literary movement. Again, Maas is an early adopter of a later literary trend. So clearly not all regional literature is conservative, whether stylistically or politically. But this fiction of regional conservatism is not limited to the low countries or even to literary culture. To help place this stereotype in a wider European cultural context and provide a comparative perspective, I now want to welcome Dr. Erik Storm, cultural historian at Leiden University, an expert on the construction of regional identity in France, Germany and Spain between 1890 and 1940. So Dr. Storm, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. Let's get started. So in your research, you have looked at the relationship between regional and avant-garde in European uh, painting and architecture. Do you come across similar stereotypes about regionalism for these art forms? Uh, yeah, but um, only later on. So, um, so regionalism, in my view, starts around the 1890s. And I only encounter these kind of stereotypes in from the 1920s onwards, and mostly f- in the field of uh, architecture. So from opponents uh, uh, from modern architecture. Can you talk a little bit about where you think this idea then comes from in architecture? Yeah, so in, in architecture, you see um, that especially in the 1920s, when Le Corbusier started um, uh, working and Bauhaus became an important movement, uh, that there was a kind of rivalry between regionalist architecture and what later became profiled or known as modern architecture. And so my view is even that modern architecture profiles itself as the opposite of regionalist architecture. So that that here, this kind of opposition between the rural and um, the urban, between tradition and modern, uh, becomes uh, defined in a sense. Um, Okay, um, but you have argued that regionalism in architecture is in fact um, an innovative movement. What are some of the innovations of this artistic movement? Well, in architecture, um, uh, regionalist architecture really rejected um, the um, historicist architecture of the 19th century, so that taking um, architectural movements from the past, like the Gothic uh, uh, style, or the Baroque style, and use it for modern buildings was rejected as something artificial. Moreover, the um, historicist architecture in general, there was no relationship between the outside and the inside. So it was very much an an artificial facade uh, showing beautiful appearances on the outside, and the inside of the building was not connected in any way to the facade. And um, regionalist architecture 
they were in favor of an honest architecture. So the inside should be shown on the outside as well. So they wanted also authentic form. So taken from the region, uh, using natural materials. And so this emphasis on honesty and authenticity, one could argue, is also something uh, that is very important in the, in modern architecture. So it, it, it really was a kind of innovative movement that rejected well, conventional historicist architecture of the preceding uh, period as um, more about appearances and so really preceding or anticipating uh, this this call for architectural honesty that became so important in, later on in the 20th century. Okay. Yeah, I think you do see similar things in literature with that, that emphasis on authenticity um, that you also get for regional fiction in the time period. So for mm-hmm. architecture, how was this received at the time by contemporaries? Um, is this idea of regionalism as a reactionary and conservative artistic form a later invention? Or is this something that already shows up when, um, when these works are first produced? And no, when they were first produced, they were really presented and, and also widely seen as an innovative movement, as something that brought uh, something new, that, that uh, it was mostly called reform architecture. So away from this artificial architecture of appearances to an organic architecture, to organic buildings that were connected to the surrounding uh, landscape that were using natural materials and were um, also um, rooted in tradition. And um, so in the 1920s, both what we now call modern architecture and regionalist architecture existed side by side and, and really were two kind of opposing camps uh, uh, at the time. And then in the um and in 1930s, there, in, there is a, in 1932, there is an international exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, where Le Corbusier and Bauhaus were presented as simply modern architecture. And so the organizers were really in favor of what they also called the international style uh, or modernism or modern, modern architecture. And um, so basically arguing that regionalism is not of our time anymore, is not so that modern architecture is the only valid style for the contemporary age. And one of the organizers, uh, Henry Russell Hitchcock, later on also wrote an overview of architectural history that really became widely used uh, in architectural uh, education. And here... um, regionalist architecture is sim- simply erased from the picture. So they were entirely removed from the canon of uh, art- architectural history. But this only happened, um, got a breakthrough after 1945. Um, so until the Second World War, both currents really still existed one next to the other. But after 1945, regionalism in a sense, became associated with fascism, um, the Nazi ideology of blood and, blood and soil. And, and so there was a strong emphasis on modernity and, and uh, on modernization. And so this is a kind of definitive 
and for regionalist architecture. Yeah, I think you do see parallels there with the literary sphere, where at the time some works were definitely um, not seen as as conservative as they are today. And then Mm -hmm. there are other artists or writers who establish themselves against regionalism a little bit, which is when you get that divide. So it's interesting that in completely different artistic spheres, you get similar um, trends a little bit, even though it's also slightly different time periods. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, So in painting, for instance... This opposition is not that strong. So uh, I think regionalism, regionalist painting really was very important uh, around the turn of the century and until the first decade of the the 20th century. But after after the First World War, it simply disappeared from artistic debate. So these painters continued to work. They uh, got a lot of money because their paintings still were very popular, but they were not uh, taken serious anymore in in art magazines, in exhibitions. Uh, So they disappeared much, much earlier in a sense. Um, yeah, so what I'm wondering about, it's it's my impression that part of the reputation of regional art is linked partly to stereotypes about the region itself, so that modernity is so often associated with urban culture and cosmopolitanism, and that rural areas are seen as comparatively backwards or stuck in the past. Do you think that part of this reputation of artistic regionalism is based on its relationship to rural landscape and culture, or is this specific, perhaps, to literature as a genre? Um, no, I... I think this also is important in in painting and architecture. But I think what is probably more important is the the general uh, appreciation for the region or for the provinces at at a time. So my impression is that from the late 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century, and this is something that continues uh, in some aspects uh, until the Second World War, the rural, the province, the region, is uh, very popular. It is seen as a location of authenticity, of also of primitivism that can bring innovation. So there is a, a widespread um, appreciation for for that, and that changes with the sec- after the Second World War. After the Second World War, you really get this this uh, fascination or this focus on uh, modernity, modernization. And so in architecture, you really see that modern architecture really is the only architecture that that still is uh, important at the time. So um, there there is a, a very strong focus. And so then the rural becomes was seen as backward as um, having to catch up in a pro- in a general process of modernization and and sticking to traditional element was seen as an obstacle to progress or or um, uh, backward so I think the what is probably more important is the the general appreciation for the region uh, and its values rather than um, that this is something that is always there this changes very much um, over time. Right, so there is that that temporal shift, especially after the war. Um, yeah. And almost for better or worse, I guess, that regional art forms are linked to views of the region itself, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is very similar 
in the romantic romantic era as well, where, where you also see this appreciation for the countryside, for um, uh, tradition, and and so halfway the nineteenth century, there there is again the shift to to modernization and modernity. Yeah. So there are clear shifts. So sometimes the the end of the nineteenth century is also characterized as as a second or a neo romantic era. Um, so I think this appreciation for the for the region really is there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think especially um, in literature, you see it perhaps earlier on um, in the nineteenth century, and especially in, in Dutch in the mid nineteenth century, this really emerges. I think. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, can you perhaps suggest a way forward from here? Um, so, how do you think we can better appreciate cultural regionalism nowadays, either in its own right or for its contributions to other cultural productions? Yeah, well, I, I think we should really, uh, as a historian, I would argue we we should study each period in its own right, and. Um, I think um, this is already starting. So in a recent book on French intellectual history of the 20th century, the first two decades of the century were characterized by uh, the author, uh, Michel Binoc, as the age of uh, Maurice Barres. And Barres was the main advocate of a literature that was rooted in the region. So the author also characterizes the 1950s and 60s as the age of uh, Sartre, which does not surprise us. But he also argues that regionalism really was the dominant uh, um, cultural trend at, at the start of the 20th century. And I think especially um, so, so regionalist literature, art and architecture, they produce a lot of beautiful um um, objects, so buildings, um, and novels, um, uh, paintings, so which are not very difficult to understand in general. And um, I also think that um, especially regionalist architecture is is very relevant today as well. So there is this sensitivity for the environment, for local production, for sustainability for um, using natural materials that is very much in harmony with um, our current day um, emphasis on uh, environmental issues. And uh, at the same time, also our current interest in identities and collective identities. And, and so not just national identities, but also regional identities is very much in line with um, uh, regionalism at the time. So so it is a kind of indirect precursor of, of things that are going on today as well. Um, yeah. yeah, so regionalism from the time still has something to teach us. Um, in the present, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and maybe also uh, we should we should also look at the more negative side. So, so there also is a kind of reactionary side to regionalism. Uh, it, it can be conservative, but it can um, move into um, reactionary. And and many of the regionalist authors and painters and architects also sympathized with fascism, although fascism really was much more aggressive and and um, in many ways very different. Um, as, so it's it's not the same, but it also has its somewhat negative sides or or some somewhat dangers to to close yourself in in a small environment and 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 do not. Well, close yourself in a sense to the world, 
isolate yourself from the world, which which I think is not always a very positive uh, thing either. Yeah, so for today, one of the, or in the title of this episode, the question is, you know, is regionalism conservative or avant-garde? And perhaps it's a bit of both, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I think um, the issue of regionalism is that there are no manifestos. So the avant-garde movements also generally tended to um, announce themselves with uh, uh, manifestos in which they claimed that there was a new revolution going on. And such manifestos do not exist for regionalism. And so re regionalism was more of a, a reform uh, movement in many ways. Um, and so they did not present themselves uh, as revolutionaries, but as reformists. And so they did not make enough noise to be heard, in a sense. And, and so their their innovative voices also probably lacking uh, very prominent um, prominent spokespersons is is something of an of an issue in a sense and uh, but but I think it's it's really worthwhile and and we should uh, pay them uh, more attention don't you agree yes i think especially from that cultural historical perspective there's a lot that remains undiscovered if you neglect these these movements yeah sure all right, I think that might be um, a good note to end on. Uh, thanks so much for your contribution to this interview and to this discussion. And I think it's really useful to place these mediums of regionalist production in dialogue with each other. So I think that's been really um, worthwhile and really useful. Um, so thank you very much for agreeing yeah. to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me. You are listening to the Regional Fictions Podcast. Now, as we wrap up this episode, we will listen to another brief excerpt, this time by the Dutch author Herman Maas. The excerpt is from the 1909 novel Het Goud van de Peel and features some calculations about the profitability of land in the Peak District, showcasing the novel's pragmatic, unsentimental and fact-based writing style. Once again, the excerpt will be read in Dutch. From part two, chapter four of Het Goud van de Peel by Herman Maas, first published in 1909. Naar alle kanten uitkijkend pakte Jennison de uitvoering aan. Waarom boden de maatschappijen zoveel geld voor den veengrond? Natuurlijk alleen voor haar eigen voordeel. Als zij zulke prijzen wilde besteden en dan zelf nog moesten verdienen, dan moest de peel toch schatten waard zijn. Hij had zich veel moeite gegeven om alles te onderzoeken. En ja, hij wist het nu zeker, dat de peel schatten waard was. En ze was die ook waard voor de gemeente zelf. Hij wilde dat allen, de raadsleden en de ingezetenen, het zo goed begrepen als hij. Wat wilden de maatschappijen doen? Fabrieken bouwen en het grauwe veen vermalen tot turfstrooisel? Maar dat kon de gemeente immers ook. Daarom, niet verkopen, zelf exploiteren. Dat was het. Als de raad het wel meende met de gemeente, dan moest hij daartoe overgaan. Kijk, men moest zich eens allen goed voorstellen... Aangenomen dat een van de maatschappijen den grond kocht. Hij zou den hoogste prijs nemen die men misschien kon krijgen. 2 miljoen gulden. Wat dan? Dan had de gemeente dat geld. Maar dan? Ze kon die som uitzetten en er jaarlijks bijvoorbeeld 60.000 gulden rente van trekken. Daarvoor was niet alleen het grauwe, doch ook het zwarte veen voor altijd weg. Wat moesten de mensen dan beginnen om brandstof te krijgen? Kopen. Dat was nadelig voor de ingezetenen en het geld uit de gemeente jagen. Weer naar de maatschappij terug. Het zou dus zijn met de ene hand krijgen en met de andere hand weer geven. 
Vooral de mindere man moest er schade door ondervinden. Maar ook de boer en de burger zouden het in hun beurs gaan voelen. Wie zou den raad dan dank weten zo het welzijn van de gemeentenaren verwaarloosd te hebben? En dat was nog niet alles. De gemeente verkocht haar grond en had geen werk meer voor de vele arbeiders. Wat dan? Geen andere uitkomst dan bedeling door den armen? Hopen van vreemd werkvolk kwam bij de maatschappij in een dienst en ging zich dus in Peelheim vestigen. Waar moest dat op uitlopen? The Regional Fictions Podcast. We've now reached the end of our episode. Thanks very much again to our guest, Dr. Erik Storm, who has joined us in this episode to help us understand the relationship between regionalism and high art across countries and art forms. If you would like to learn more about regional fiction in the long 19th century, please check out the other episodes in this series. And thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to the Regional Fictions podcast. These podcasts are part of the Redefining the Region project at Radboud University, with generous funding from the Dutch Research Council, NWO. Find out more at ru.nl slash redefiningtheregion. region.